0: When I was in high school, I felt pretty well supported by the adults around me, and there were even some I could talk to when things were really tough. But mostly, I went to my peers, and while we might talk about a particular thing that was bothering us, it was mostly griping, not exactly what I would call solutions-oriented, and we certainly never used the term mental health. I was in high school in the late 1990s, and for as much as our awareness of mental health issues has grown and changed since then, There are a lot of similarities in high schools today. As it turns out, we are going back to high school this week on the Up North Lowdown from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Ed Ronco. We'll hear about a survey of students across the Grand Traverse region and what it tells us about youth mental health. But first, just a moment with Michigan's presidential primary and an effort by left-leaning voters to send a message to incumbent President Joe Biden. You've probably heard about the effort to vote uncommitted in the Michigan Democratic primary. A lot of those stories have come out of Dearborn, the suburb of Detroit that has the largest percentage of Muslim and Arab Americans of any U.S. city. That group largely supported Biden in 2020, but their support for the president soured when he failed to temper Israel's bombing campaign and ground invasion in Gaza after the October 7th Hamas attack. So, They coordinated a protest, voting uncommitted instead of for President Biden in Michigan's Democratic primary this week. The message made its way up north, where about 10% of Democratic voters in the counties around Grand Traverse Bay marked uncommitted on their ballots. That includes nearly 900 people in Grand Traverse County. Altogether, more than 100,000 Michiganders marked the uncommitted bubble, and their hope was that President Joe Biden's campaign would take notice.
1: I would find it incredibly arrogant if they didn't.
0: That's the voice of Christian Gagan. He's with a group called TC Solidarity, which holds weekly demonstrations in downtown Traverse City against the Biden administration's Gaza policy. He says the response to the uncommitted campaign was strong.
1: On short notice, people were mobilized to go out and not just, oh, I don't know who to pick, uh, just mark me uncommitted, but like, consciously make a choice. Do vote uncommitted, and that number will only grow. If he's not worried, then, I mean, good luck in November.
0: Now, President Biden still won the Democratic primary in Michigan by a wide margin. But Gagan, who is Muslim and half-Palestinian, thinks there could be real consequences for the president in Michigan this November. And yet, he says he's heard the argument that a second Trump administration would be worse for the policies he supports, But he says he and about 100,000 other Michiganders are tired of waiting for changes that they were promised would become real. Most high school students are reluctant to ask for help at school if they feel sad or anxious. That was one finding of a survey taken last year of students across the Grand Traverse region Fewer than one in five kids said they would be comfortable asking a school counselor for help. Ellen Grams is part of the Youth Wellness Initiative here in northern Michigan, which did this survey. She goes to Traverse City Central High School and wants to understand the disconnect. In this excerpt from our podcast series called Reframe of Mind, Grams sat down with a counselor from her school, Sarah Dennis Parker, and with an assistant principal, Ben Berger.
1: There's things in high school that are exactly the same as like when your parents went and like the stereotypes of what the office represents or what talking to an adult one-on-one represents. So we're really fighting that and we do that by just trying to, to have connections be the base of our work. Like, if I'm connecting with students throughout my whole day, then there's no presumptions about if it's giving an award, giving an interview, helping someone through a loss recently. It's just, that's what we do here. We connect and we work with students. So if you get called to the office, it must be that you're just getting some kind of connection. And so the stigma is one, um, and then being systematic about it. I think we're starting to, we track on the back end with note sheets on facts about students because we wanna know their story. And so being really intentional about what students I've met with, what students Sarah's met with, and then meeting once a week to talk about how they're doing.
2: Have there been any efforts to help reduce discomfort among students? Mm -hmm. About three years ago, at that time, we had a student services center kind of out of the way, uh, more towards our library area, and we were all housed in one area. And to collaboratively work together as a counseling and social work staff, that was phenomenal. But we weren't as accessible to students. And so what our administration decided to do about three years ago is to break that up and move us into, they did some reconstruction and my office is now right on a pretty heavily trafficked hallway. I'm right there, my door is typically always open and I have kids exercise the pop-in on a very regular basis. So kids are much more apt to access us now that we're not all in this one little spot where you had to be very intentional to come and find us as a student and now I think I know my plate has been way more full than it was before in a good way Um, so that's one of the things that we've done.
3: In the free response section of our survey students described wishing school counseling services were more accessible and welcoming. I read through every single free response answer and I was really taken aback by how negative the free response answers were and you know that's students who have an experience are more inclined to put that than st- like people who are like oh, everything's fine they're gonna skip past it but um the things people said about teachers and counselors not being like I hate them but being like they don't support me I can't talk to them they're gonna tell me like all this stuff mm. um those kind of responses that I've seen and I've witnessed from like personally interacting, being like, oh, have you gone to a counselor at school? Have you reached out? They're like, I don't want to do that. Um, Do you have thoughts on how counseling could be made more accessible?
1: I think Sarah did a great job of talking about the proximity and literally just being present and being a more present figure in your life. I think that the second is, is I don't want to talk to anyone I don't know either. And so I think that schools in the region should have a proactive approach to really build authentic relationships because like i don't know alan you're really good at like your peers are really good at seeing if like i'm just like sleepwalking through talking to you or if i genuinely care about what you're talking about and so some of that i think is like do staff really give off the impression like do students walk away from an interaction with staff thinking wow, that he really cares about me, or like he knows stuff about me. And if they don't, then of course they're not going to want to talk to you. So I think some of it might be um, reprioritizing what's on teachers' and counselors' plates so there is cognitive energy and desire for that because I would guarantee that every teacher and, and counselor that interviewed for a job believes that they want to help kids. There might just be stuff clogging their plate. So I think that if buildings are really dead set on this um, services being more available and students wanting them more, then they need to do a better job of prioritizing that for their, for their staff and clearing the plates of the other stuff that's not as important.
3: When students do seek help, how often is it successful and how would you determine whether or not you've had a successful interaction with a student?
1: I'll just go with a recent example here. Uh, I determine success by a return visit. And so I had a student I was working with that uh, Ms. Flaherty, my assistant, tipped me off on like, hey, there's some change at home. Let's, let's, let's just have a formal touch base, see how it's going. And when we do those, you wanna have a certain amount of tact that's not just like, hey, I heard home life sucks right now. Um, and so it's a, it's a really tactful touch in where you're just getting to know the kid or, or, or ask how things are going. And he was really closed off to start and then went about his day the next day he came back and talked for about a half an hour. He wasn't on my calendar or anything. So I think that for me was success because not because his problems were fixed, not because uh, I did anything magical, just because I could sense that there was a, re- a thread of a relationship forming. And that has been a hook that has allowed me in to support this student through some troubling times at home. And so that's, I, in that case, I would say a return visit.
2: If kids feel like, they're being listened to, and there is that respect. I can ask some more probing questions. It's not going to take real long to help them get to an answer that works for them, and it's it's their aha moment.
0: That last voice there was Sarah Dennis Parker, a counselor at Traverse City Central High School. She and assistant principal Ben Berger were talking with Ellen Grams, one of the hosts of the youth podcast Reframe of Mind. Support for this project came from the Grand Traverse Regional Community Foundation, and you can find the entire podcast series on our website, iprnews.org. The Up North Lowdown. We'll be right back.
4: At a time when
5: information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.
6: In the mid-1900s, a man moves to the Straits of Mackinac to escape the hustle and bustle. He starts to have religious visions and builds big stone monuments to commemorate them. Then, the story gets twisted.
7: The, the story that I heard... Kind of its simple form was that he had a dream or a vision that Jesus came to him and basically told him to murder his wife.
6: But did he really? Next time on Points North, exploring the legend of Heike's tombs and answering the question, how are urban legends created? That episode of Points North is available now. You can listen to it wherever you're hearing this podcast.
0: Welcome back to The Lowdown. I'm Ed Ronco. This past year, Michigan lawmakers passed a huge set of new climate laws, and we've been telling you about them occasionally here on the pod, including one about where big solar and wind power projects can be located. Basically, the state now has the authority to approve them, taking the power to say no away from local communities. But how does the state decide whether it's a green light? One criterion named in the law has to do with bees and butterflies. And other pollinators developers of big renewable energy projects can now build pollinator habitat to offset damage to the land but as ipr climate reporter izzy ross tells us experts say this is not a silver bullet
4: there are a lot of pollinators in michigan and they all have different needs For example, honeybees are generalists. They can work many different types
8: of flowers. They have kind of a mid-range tongue, but like we have bees with very short tongues and they need
4: very specific types of flowers. That's Megan Milbrath, an assistant professor at Michigan State University. She helped develop the university's Pollinator Scorecard, which the state's recent climate legislation named as a way for solar developers to mitigate their impact on the land. Millbrath says each site is different. Sandy, muddy, hilly.
8: We had a lot of conversation about, you know, the border around the solar panels versus under the solar panels and then how you'd have to parcel up different sites as well. So... Having one scorecard, I think, is a nice place to start the conversation, but it isn't necessarily going to be the final thing that determines whether or not or how good a particular site is going to be for pollinators.
4: She says doing that means developers need to tailor their projects to the region they're working in. So a lot of the scorecard has to do
8: with site selection, site prep, how you choose your plants. But really, five years from now, is this providing healthy habitat? But that can be complicated.
4: Many plant species have local variants, and common seed mixes don't take that into consideration. That's bad news for pollinators that rely on specific plants.
8: It's called a pollination syndrome, where some of the pollinators have really like a one-to-one relationship with a flower. And so if you don't have that flower, you don't have that pollinator. And that could be both for getting food and then also, especially for butterflies, for feeding the larvae and then also for habitat for nesting sites and for cocoons and things like that.
4: And she cautions against what she calls bee washing, actions that are purported to help bees but aren't actually all that helpful. Michigan's Public Service Commission now has the power to approve large solar and wind developments over the objections of a local government. The pollinator scorecard will be among the criteria state regulators consider when a developer applies for a permit.
0: IPR's Izzy Ross reporting. Her work comes to us through a partnership with Grist. Okay, from bees to guitars now, and another installment of our series, Fresh Coast Creatives.
7: This is Fresh Coast Creatives from IPR, a series about artists and inspiration in Northern Michigan. Each week, we'll go into the studio or creative space of a local artist and talk with them about what makes them tick. I'm Max Howard. This week, we're backstage at the Garden Theater in Frankfurt with Tim Jones, a man of many hats. Tim works for the nonprofit restoring the space to its former glory. They recently put in a new curtain.
5: This used to just be like a, a hand crank pole And if you had, I mean, it still is like a work in progress. Yeah. You just put this bathroom in here. It's a mix of like, like old
0: and, and new. Yeah.
7: Tim's performed on this stage a number of times, but before living in Frankfurt, Tim was writing songs in the studios of country artists in Nashville.
5: A big drive used to be like, I want to be in the Songwriters Hall of Fame.
7: But that's not so much his dream anymore. Tim has this kind of warmth that feels like a mix of Southern hospitality and California chill. He looks like it too. On stage, he'll wear those Western shirts with the pointed collars. But there's this LA feel to it. Maybe it's the yellow lenses on his wired rim glasses. Either way, I like him and we get off topic. Somehow, I tell him about this story I heard about this man who buys an apartment with a nice view. Each morning, the man wakes up, looks out the window, and is again and again thankful. Until one day, he isn't. He doesn't see the beautiful view for a while, but eventually, he learns to see it again. Tim's story is kind of like this. Tim was 14 when his dad gifted him an electric guitar.
5: And it had a little PV Rage amp. It had like a button that would like make it just sort of...
7: And from there, he played around Indianapolis, his hometown, with the band he formed with his high school friends.
5: And then we were like going to New York, you know, when I was 20 years old to showcase for these record labels. And like a few months after that, we, we signed with um, Sony.
7: His band, Old Pike, released their first record in 1997. They toured and wrote songs for about a half a decade.
5: And then Napster hit and, and the, 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 the record labels started losing all this revenue because people were just sharing files and, and, and so then they cut all these, all these contracts where it, it, we were like the last blast of like people getting quarter of a million dollar record contracts and big expense budgets and going to five-star hotels and Uh having champagne every night, you know. In
7: 2001. Old Pike disbanded, and from there, Tim moved to Los Angeles to try and start a solo career.
5: When I got to Los Angeles, and and then I suddenly realized, like, there are just as many people who came from all over the rest of the country who maybe are, are better looking and can sing better and can definitely play their instruments better.
7: Tim was sending songs to producers and networking, but in the meantime, he'd taken a day job at a bar he used to visit with his band. One night, the Grammys were playing in the bar, and the band trained was up for an award. Tim had toured with them before.
5: That was like a low point, because I was like, oh my god, they're like winning a Grammy. We were, I was just on tour with them. Now here I am carrying like buckets of ice on each arm.
7: A few years later, Tim joined another band, which made a move from L.A. to Nashville. He was touring and eventually found himself writing for other artists. Tim was writing songs and playing music he was proud of, but he'd been doing it for a long
5: time. I've been creating, and feeling this pressure to create. Even when I did enjoy it, it was, I was just like, Rrr. it was like a, just a, like a hamster on a wheel. It's like mm-hmm. I gotta play this show. I gotta play this show. This show's gonna pay me this much. This show's gonna pay mm-hmm. me this much.
7: When COVID hit, Tim and his wife Katie were able to hit pause. They started looking around, seeing what jobs were out there. When Katie found a job opportunity, executive director at the Garden Theater.
5: We had this opportunity to move up here, and for Katie to run the Garden Theater, and you know, there's part of me that was like, "Oh, I'd had my whole life planned around writing songs in Nashville and playing on the Grand Old Opry." And at
7: first, Tim wasn't so sure about the move.
5: And we drove up, and I and drove through like Bear Lake for the first time that I'd never driven through, and I was like, "Oh my God, this is like where we're gonna live now." And there was a certain part of me that was like kind of terrified in a second because I was like, "Oh, this is like." One of three gas stations.
7: Tim's life did get a little slower.
5: I had mm-hmm. no gigs and I had no shows. I had no songwriting appointments. Which probably was kind of scary at first. It was scary, but I had never been happier in my really? life.
7: There's a group of friends Tim gets together with every summer at the Waterville Inn near Heron Lake, which is where Tim and Katie got married.
5: And they just sit around and, and play music. And somebody's like, when's the last time you just got together and played music for fun? And I And I couldn't remember. So it was like, after living in Music City, USA, I had literally stopped playing music for the reason that I started playing music, which was pure joy and fun and playing with your friends.
7: Nowadays, Tim can be found playing music at the alluvian or Lakeian Brewing, and even at the Garden Theater. But for Tim, it feels different.
5: I feel like that art and um, magic and connectivity is more easy for me to see and feel and understand in Northern Michigan.
7: For Interlock and Public Radio, I'm Max Howard.
2: Support for Fresh Coast Creatives comes from the Northwest Michigan Arts and Culture Network through an award from the Michigan Arts and Culture Council. Connecting arts, culture, and our creative communities.
0: Time to find out what else is news here in Northern Michigan. Dozens of people voiced opposition this week to funding for a copper mine in the Upper Peninsula. The state is considering a $50 million grant for the proposed project called Copperwood. Critics have a number of concerns, including the risk of water pollution and threats to tourism. Proponents say it would bring a lot of investment to a struggling rural economy and provide domestic copper to renewable energy infrastructure in Michigan and beyond. A Gaylord business has been slapped with a $750,000 fine from the federal government. The EPA says a truck modification facility called Diesel Freak knowingly modified diagnostic systems on trucks, causing them to release toxic emissions above federal safety levels. WCMU reports that the company owner admitted around 70% of the business involved deleting controls on emissions. This past week here in Interlochen, it hit 72 degrees on Tuesday, was 20-something and snowy on Wednesday. And this weekend, the thermometer is climbing back into the 60s. A wild ride for all of us, but especially fruit growers. One cherry grower in northern Michigan told IPR that warm days, followed by moisture and freezing temperatures, can be really bad news for her crop. Farmer Cheryl Kobernick says she won't know if the cherries suffered until spring, but she's reporting the weather whiplash to her crop insurer just in case. And that's it for us this week. We had contributions from Ellie Katz, Ellen Grahams, Juliet Heinle, Peter Payette, and Max Howard. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. And the Fresh Coast Creatives theme comes from Sveinborg Cardib. Our producer is Max Copeland. I'm Ed Ronco. Sometimes when a reporter goes out to record a story, they end up being led in directions they never expected. IPR's Ellie Katz found that out recently when she went to talk to a fisheries biologist for an upcoming episode of our Points North podcast. I'll let her explain the rest.
6: Yeah, so we're finishing up the interview. I was putting away all my my gear. And then he just says, should we end with a song? And he walks over to where there's a bunch of fisheries research equipment hanging, you know, like wetsuits and life vests and some boats were hanging up on the wall. And out of this big gaggle of things, he just pulls out a guitar (laughs) and he starts tuning it. He walks back over to me and uh, he sings this song. This one
1: has been down here in the workshop a bit. It might take a second.
0: So we leave you this week with fisheries biologist Jason Smith on the guitar. reason. There's only three seasons, winter, the summer, and fall. The spring's but a day, come late in May, between the cedars and the last snowfall.
1: There's more white-tailed deer than people up here. Morel's so quite hard to find. Black flies in the
2: air, some in my hair. You crossed over the line. You know you crossed over.
0: Over the line. Thanks for listening. Have a
1: great week. Games have a swing to them, you know, systems have a life, but the music just perseveres.
0: Dr. Matthew Thompson is a music professor, pianist, and authority on video game music. On this program, he'll guide us through the soundtrack to Final Fantasy VII Remake, comparing the ambitious 2020 score with the iconic 1997 original. It's music from Final Fantasy VII Remake, this week on Gameplay. You can stream full episodes of Gameplay on demand and view playlists
2: at GameplayShow.org.